My name is Susie. I have three children, the youngest of whom struggles with anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. I never thought this could happen to me, and I miss the signs. Being a parent is really hard, but I'm here to help. I'm talking to other parents and experts to help you with the struggles that your kids may face. I want you to know that you are not alone and there is hope. I'm not a physician, therapist, or counselor. I'm just a mom. I want to see you smile again, take away that pain in them clouds that keep covering up the sun. On this episode of the Just a Mom podcast, I'm very excited to be joined by Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer. Hi there. Thank you again for being willing to share a little bit about your story. And I want to point out that um, our mutual acquaintance slash professional friend, Dr. Shayla Sullivan, is the one who connected us. So I appreciate that. Um, If you're listening to this episode and you haven't heard any other episodes, Dr. Sullivan was in the first season of the podcast, and she shared some great information about some programs that she runs, as well as some general information about um, psychiatric care as she is a psychiatrist at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. So if you haven't heard that episode, go back to season one and check it out. It's got some really good information. But moving forward, I'm excited. Yeah, excited is probably not the right word. I'm looking forward to diving in to your story and hearing about your family. So why don't you just start us off by telling us a little bit about your family? Yeah, so I started, um, I met my husband in 2011, and we were both teaching together with the Teach for America program. So I am not from Kansas City, but it brought me here to Kansas City to teach from New York. And we were both teaching kindergarten at the time. And when I got into my fourth year teaching, I met my now child. He was a student in my classroom, and we decided we wanted to become foster parents because he was living in an unusual situation. And we became licensed, and he entered our home a few months later. And our journey as uh, foster parents was quite a wild journey, probably a different podcast needed (laughs) to, to talk about the ups and downs of foster care and the foster system. But we tried to reunify a few times, and it didn't work out, so we were cleared for adoption about two years later. Two years after he first came to your home? Yes. So at that time, he was seven? seven. Mm-hmm. Okay. So once you were cleared for adoption, then how did that all play out? Yeah, so it was kind of unique in that he was a student of mine first. So he saw me as an authority figure, as a person to you know, give instruction and listen to instruction from based on our classroom experience. He always called me Mrs. Christensen. He didn't call me mom or anything like that. And we allowed him to call us whatever whatever he felt comfortable with. And um, But when we did finally adopt him, he was really confused because he thought that during those two years, he had already been in his forever home. So it was really upsetting for him to learn that he was not yet adopted and he didn't he wasn't old enough to understand the nuances behind the difference between fostering and adoption and how um, how we want to reunify the purpose of foster care is for reunification in his you know six-year-old five-year-old mind he was just like 
cool, this is where I live now, and this will be permanent. And that's not what fostering is meant to be. So we never talked with him about, you know, hopefully you'll get to go home soon. It was just playing it day by day. And, you know, there are challenges that come along with fostering too. Kids that are in the foster care system have experienced a lot of trauma. And kids that are adopted have experienced a lot of trauma. Trauma, adoption is trauma. Trauma Mm. comes from adoption. Even though adoption can be a wonderful way to, to help someone, the essence of being removed from your first family is traumatic. So any kids in foster care or any kids that have been adopted uh, have experienced trauma. So that trauma caused a lot of behavioral and mental health challenges in our home right from the get-go. Even when he was a foster child still. Yes, absolutely. So he started therapy at the age of five. He had therapy in school. He started with skills work, which is just... You know, practicing some breathing techniques and coping skills, how to handle your feelings, how to talk about your feelings. And it was it was hard. It's hard for a kid that young to talk about feelings. It's it's just really abstract. So they did some play therapy and theraplay. I don't know if you're familiar with theraplay. I'm not. They basically just use play strategies to work through feelings. So the therapist will sit and play with a kiddo. They'll play with figurines. They'll play with action figures and toys and see what themes come out of their type of play. If the kids are playing with their toys really violently, they might ask questions like, how does this character feel? And what do you think this character is thinking to help the kids develop a sense of empathy toward the characters that can then be used in their own lives? So we did that for the first year during kindergarten, and that was really cool. It was a new experience for us. Sure. We did some PCIT, parent-child interaction therapy. I've not heard of that either. That's used for a lot of kids that are adopted and a lot of kids in foster care. There's a lot of um, attachment styles that change during those formative years in foster care. So kids that need to learn how to trust adults again need to learn how to be vulnerable and learn how to be a child. A lot of times kids with trauma have... Uh, been parentified and have to kind of take care of themselves so they learn how to rely on a parent yeah had your son been in other foster homes prior to coming to your home at age five yes we were his seventh foster home and a few of those homes (sighs) were like yeah yeah it's Mm. wild to think about and a few of those homes were shelters so there was no Mm. real parent but staff on a rotating basis taking care of a handful of kids at a time Mm. When you just stop and sit in that and think about it for a few minutes, that is truly heartbreaking. And I can only imagine the set of luggage that a child who's experienced something like that would bring with him or her. Yeah. Well, and and to think about a setting like that where a kid doesn't have a one set person in charge, then when they come to live at a home and someone makes the decisions, they're kind of like, well, who are you? Mm-hmm. Why, what made you be the person in charge right. here? So there was a lot of dissonance that our son had between, well, Miss Christensen's my teacher, so she makes the rules at school, but she doesn't make the rules at home mm-hmm. because you're not, you're not the staff that works mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And then my husband, he was like, well, and who are you? So had he had many male figures in his life at that point? It's hard to say. He had a lot of uncles, and okay. who. it's hard to know what kind of role they played in his life. Sure. 
he definitely gravitates towards men when it comes to playing games, video games, um, playing with with toys and figures, playing with our dogs. He's very playful with with my husband, with men. Um, But there's not a lot of listening to directions from men. Okay. When you adopted him at age seven, did you have other children at that time? No, we did not. Okay. And we realized pretty quickly that it wasn't a good time to try to add any other children because he needed a lot. He needed therapy about three times a week. He needed therapy in school. He needed therapy after school. And once he got to seven and then eight years old, he was a little bit too old to do the play therapy. He was like, I don't Mm want to play with these people. Who are these strangers? And we went back to the talk therapy. And talking about feelings was really difficult for him. He didn't want to talk about feeling upset. He he had this negative association with being angry. Mm. So he would just scream, I'm not mad. I'm not angry. And he couldn't understand that these feelings are okay. These feelings are acceptable. But in his brain, he was like, no, I, I can't have these feelings. Mm. These are bad. So I'm not those feelings. Mm. So his therapist had to teach him how to separate the feelings from the actions. So you can feel mad and that's okay. You can't punch a hole in the wall. Right. You can feel sad and that's okay. You can't hurt yourself. So there were these separations that he needed to learn how to do in his own brain. And he's only eight. So, I mean, these are separations that adults have trouble with. Oh, yeah. And therapy is hard. Yes. And requires participation from the client or the patient who is in therapy. Right. And how do you make someone do therapy? You can't. You can't. (laughs) I can't tell you how many people have asked me that. Yeah. And there's – so you can incentivize. Sure. Right? So we would say – after therapy, if you do a great job talking about your feelings, we can go get a milkshake. Mm-hmm. After a couple of weeks, he was like, I don't need a milkshake. Mm. I don't want that. I'd rather not talk about my feelings. So incentivizing didn't really work. But around eight, we did have our first suicide attempt, and we oh. had to walk into an emergency room and talk to them about, um, you know, I know he's little. I know he's he looks happy on the outside, but he's not happy. Eight years old. Yeah. So he got put on antidepressants at a pretty low dose, and our therapist was wonderful and trauma-informed, so she understood that depression could be one uh, one of his diagnoses, but PTSD was the overarching diagnosis okay. because he had such a history of trauma. Sure. Do you know, had he been abused physically or mentally? Do you know that? He was abused sexually, and most of that was during his verbal years. He was abused sexually and physically in a few foster homes also. And then there was mostly neglect. Mm. So he witnessed a lot of things that come along with poverty, but then are not – there's no support. There's no help. And then it exacerbates all of the other things. Wow. No electricity, no water, and no food, and, you know, that's trauma. Uh, yeah, exactly. and it's also it's also poverty. Oh yeah. So how do you how do you fix that whole system? Mm, yeah, which like you said earlier, that's a, an, another podcast, and not something that I yeah. do. I'm just a mom, to be clear. But but then kids get removed and placed yes. into foster home, but then the yes. parents don't get help. Yeah, like the parents don't get mm. monetary support to get their lights and electricity back on. Well, and are the birth parents? Getting help for whatever psychological issues 
they're dealing with as well. I mean, I don't right? know. That's I don't it. know a whole lot about the foster system. Usually they're not. Usually they're, they're told to follow a case plan. And if they follow it, they get their kids back. And if they don't follow it, they don't get the kids back. Mm. And in our situation, they did follow the plan. And they actually had nine kiddos. So they got several of them back at a time. And then that's a lot of pressure to mm-hmm. take care of kids that you haven't had in your home for a year. Right. Kids that have had trauma, then they don't want to follow the directions that their first mom gave them because now they have all these different adults that are giving them all sorts of different directions and boundaries, and it's confusing. Well, it's confusing, and I would think that a child who had been abused in whatever way would not be particularly excited to to take directions from yeah. the potential abuser or neglector. Yeah. Makes sense to me. Yeah, and in our situation— First mom did not abuse him, but allowed other people into the mm-hmm. home and had less supervision. So then abuse happened due to that neglect. Gotcha. Mm. It's really heartbreaking to think about. Um, yeah, it's I, it's really hard to think about that. Yeah. Um, but I'm guessing that that's, I don't know, again, a lot about the foster system, but I would assume, and maybe this is incorrect, that a lot of kids who are in the foster system have experienced some type of abuse. Oh, yeah. Mm. And it's cyclical. So if they had put effort into helping mom when she had the kids, right, if there was money and systems and and people like parental coaches that would come in for low cost or free to assist, maybe none of that would have happened in the first place, mm. you know? Yeah. When... He was in your home as a foster child and then ultimately your adopted child, and he was exhibiting these behaviors, and it sounds like immediately you were, you know, had him in the play therapy, et cetera. Did you have any idea what your future would be like? Did you have any idea um, that when he was eight years old, he would attempt to take his own life? Oh, gosh, no. No, I, I assumed that there was a trauma history that led to feelings of self-worthlessness mm-hmm. and self-depreciating thoughts. He would say things like, well, my mom didn't want me. And mm-hmm. that's not true. We would always say, of course she does. She's trying so hard. She's she's trying to follow her case plan. We still want to visit with her um, because we don't ever want to speak badly about a situation that we don't have all of the information about. Sure. But that... Just like you can't make someone do therapy, you can't make someone believe positive things about themselves. Sure. So that, I think, is a lifelong journey that right. he will always be on. Mm. And how many years had you and your husband been married when you brought him into your home as a foster child? It was our first year of marriage. Wow. That probably wasn't the smartest decision, <laughs> but... I didn't say anything about that. I'm just saying, wow, that's... That's a lot for a a young new marriage. Well, yeah, we had never really had the chance to talk about our parenting styles or what we believe when it comes to how how we discipline or, um, yeah, like our beliefs about technology use with children or talk about therapy. What do we believe about therapy? Mm -hmm. And we just kind of jumped right into, into it. I'm guessing seeing him on a daily basis, though, kind of, really broke your heart and you wanted to do something to help. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine seeing that every day. Yeah, it's definitely, it's a roller coaster, right? Because you think a lot about, I want to help, I want to help, I want to help. And then you think, 
well, what actually is helpful? Mm. What would be the most helpful thing? And if he had been living with his family at the time, maybe the most helpful thing would have been providing resources to his family. But at the time that he was in my classroom, he was in a shelter. So there were not a lot of things that I could even do to help. Mm. There are HIPAA violations about knowing where kids live when they're in a shelter because they're minors. And so I can't communicate with the shelter. That means nobody can come in for parent-teacher conferences. So what do you do? Mm. Interesting. There's a lot of um, blocks, uh, roadblocks in the way, I would, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And my husband and I, when we first signed up to be foster parents, we knew his level of care would need to be a little elevated. They rate children on how difficult they are to, to care for. Mm-hmm. So kids that are easy, they call them traditional children. Kids that have a difficulty of care level, um, they need a therapeutic home. Mm-hmm. So you need to have additional training and additional resources in your pocket. You need to be able to call someone and say, this therapy isn't working. What else do we have access to? And what will his insurance cover? Kids in foster care are on Medicaid. Yes. And there's a lot of barriers there. They don't want to cover more than one therapy at a time. And sometimes they need more than one therapy at a time. They usually do. They don't want to cover medications if there's a generic available. And that's messy. I think that's a big part of your story, and that's how you guys were what approved to have him, right? Sure. Yeah, yes. We got additional training over over the course of like three months to have um, the level that we needed to be able to take him into our home. And if I remember correctly, when we talked on the phone, you said you have a psychology undergraduate degree? Yes. And you're a teacher, so I I would think that that would be like, ooh, put you up at the yeah. Top when of the you list. have a connection with a kiddo who's in foster care, uh, even if it's not a biological relational connection, they often call it a kinship placement because you're not placing a child with a complete stranger. You're placing them with someone who is kind of like next of kin. So we, I was considered a kinship placement for my son because I was his teacher already. Okay. So it was better in the state's eyes to to have him stay at my home than with a complete stranger because at least he knows who I am. And when he was in your classroom and when you brought him in as a foster child, did he have a diagnosis at that point? I know you said later he, no, got, he, did not. he had no diagnosis. He had problematic okay. behaviors in school. So we had been talking about the potential um, like screening for an IEP so that mm-hmm. we could get additional support at school. But at the time, his... Family still had legal rights, and they denied all of the uh, testing for special education services. And that's a that's a there's a fine line, right? Because once you get put into special education services, you're you're there until 18. You can't test your way out of being labeled as special education. And in America, we have a lot of kids who have had trauma, but maybe don't have a diagnosis. But that trauma causes problematic behavior who then get an IEP and they're labeled ED, emotionally disturbed. And that follows you until 18. But they probably are emotionally disturbed. I mean, truly, I it, I yeah. can't even imagine. And I know my daughter has a couple of kids who that is part of who they are is the trauma that they've experienced yeah. from their parents. But then if you... 
if you've had a bad experience with the school system, mm. you might not trust that having a label like that is going to get you the services that we need. You and I know, because yeah. we have people in education or we have experience in education, that an IEP is helpful. Right. There are some people who have been given an IEP 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago that it were kind of put in a room and not given an education. Yeah. And there have been laws that have made that less likely to happen. There's... Um, you know, free and appropriate access to to education. There's, there are laws that make sure that kids that have special needs or existing in in a system that caters to special needs can get what they actually need and are not just put in the other classroom down the hall. In second grade, we got on antidepressants. In third grade, we increased our antidepressants. We saw a lot of self-harm still. And we started a new kind of therapy called EMDR, which mm. is one of the best kinds of therapy for people with PTSD and kids with sexual abuse. And would you tell everyone what EMDR is? Yes. Eye movement desensitization reprogramming. So it reprograms your brain using things like Lights that shine in front of your eyes, they go from the left side to the right side, so it passes the midline of your brain, so both of your hemispheres are activated. And the thought process behind this is that when your brain is stimulated on both hemispheres, it can release the corpus callosum, the middle of the brain where we store some of our trauma. So when people are being stimulated bilaterally, both sides of the brain, your brain floods some of those emotions. And then your body gets desensitized to these feelings. So the feelings of, you know, um, blood rushing to your fingertips or the color draining from your face, those are all body reactions that are happening to outside stimuli. You might get embarrassed and then you might feel nervous. You might, your, your palms get clammy and sweaty. You might start stuttering and stammering because you're nervous. All of these things will happen less frequently when you get used to these sensitizations that are in your body. Mm. So you'll get used to these feelings, and then it won't feel so triggering. And your son has done this therapy. Yes. And have you seen the positive effect oh, of it? Oh, yeah. And, and like any therapy, when you first start, there's often a point where the behavior or negative thoughts increase at first. So it feels like we're going backwards. But it's because it's bringing up a lot of feelings that we've kind of tried to suppress yeah. inside of us and, and we're trying to hide them. So at first we saw a decrease in the good days at school. And then we saw an improvement. We saw his ability to talk about different things without having extreme outbursts and reactions. It, it happened within weeks. Wow. And these therapies were happening because you were driving the bus on that. Is that correct? Yes. We had a case manager that was through our therapeutic agency, our treatment level foster parent agency, that stayed with us post-adoption too. Since we were a higher level need case, they were able to stick with us as long as we wanted them, oh, which wow. was phenomenal. So they helped us. They researched alongside with us. They were like, hey, have you ever heard of this? No, I've never heard of that. Let's try it. Let's let's have an intake. Can you put in a referral? And they can put in referrals for those kinds of things, which is awesome. I'm thinking about how helpful it's been for your son to be with adoptive parents who, A, have some knowledge, B, are willing to explore and look for some things to help him because I'm guessing that's not always the case. Yeah, I think that there's this idea in 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 some areas of the world that like therapy is not needed and we don't we don't 
we don't need to talk about our feelings. We just need to make our behavior better. We just need to do the right thing, and, and it doesn't involve our feelings. But in reality, it's all inextricably linked. We can't, we can't just forget our feelings, right. right? So there are some foster families that just like there are some biological families that don't believe in therapy. Sure. Or don't believe in medication. Sure. And it's life-saving, Mm-hmm. For a lot of people. Oh, yeah. So the fact that I had to do so much research to find these therapies is like, that's not okay. Mm. These things should be broadly shared. Right. There should be websites that you can search and just say different kinds of therapies I've never heard of mm-hmm. and, and find a list of them all and figure out what insurance they take, what ages you need to be. Like, I shouldn't have to call five different companies and say, do you take Medicaid? Do you accept kids that are under nine years old? Mm. Like, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of barriers to getting help. Tons of barriers. And if you are working a full-time job or a couple of full-time jobs and you don't have the availability to make those calls between nine and five, mm-hmm. then what? Yeah. I mean, we're exposing all kinds of issues here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The system is super broken. And maybe that'll be my next job is to figure out how to how to fix it. Okay, well, you can come back then <laughs> after that and, and tell us how you how you fixed it. Um, so I want to go back to when your son was eight and had, his, you said, his first attempt on his life. Yes. Did he end up inpatient at that point? No. We okay. walked into the emergency room, and we were there for about six hours. They did a quick mental health screening, and they said... He clearly needs an antidepressant. We will schedule you for an emergency psychiatric meeting like tomorrow morning. Mm, Wow. Which is great because we had been on wait lists for psychiatric help and therapist offices were like, well, see you in a few months. But being able to walk into the emergency room got us a foot in the door to have a a faster meeting. When that attempt happened – how did you feel? What was that like? Were you shocked? Yes. I, my first thought, and it, since I was naive, I didn't have any experience with depression in my own life. So I didn't understand that someone at the age of eight could feel something so strongly that made them not want to be alive. So at first I was like, well, is he is he playing? Is this a attention-seeking kind of behavior? And 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 maybe it is, but any call for attention, I mean, we, we call for attention all day long, right? Anything mm. that we do is asking for attention in, in different ways. Even if there is a call for attention, it doesn't mean that it's not a serious attempt. Right. And we, like any household with children, have things locked up. Sharps are, are not where they're accessible, but his attempt didn't involve weapons he he like threw himself down the stairs head first and Mm. like in my brain I was like that's not what it looks like when you want to hurt Mm. yourself because that's not something I'd ever seen before but it doesn't invalidate an attempt because it's something you haven't seen absolutely well and if he were to have hit his head just the right or wrong way yeah Absolutely, that could have one hundred percent taken his life. Once you were able to get him with the psychiatrist immediately because of that, 
and started on the medication. How did things play out moving forward from there? Yeah, so we saw an improvement in his time between self-harming instances with a low low dose of Zoloft or sertraline, just like, you know, your pretty basic antidepressant. We started at 25 milligrams. And instead of having self-harm thoughts or statements every day, it was like once or twice a week. Which, That's improvement. Yeah, huge improvement for, for a child. So we were like, great, this is working. Cool, we're done. Like every <laughs> idiot parent. Well, that was thinks. a short episode. Thank <laughs> you for being here. <laughs> yeah. And then just a few months later, we saw some more serious self-harming, looking for like nails in the wall that were protruding so we could try and hurt ourselves with with items because he knew we had things locked up, so he had to kind of be more creative. Um, so we increased that dose and went to 50, so we doubled it. And again, then we saw fewer instances of self-harm. We were like, great, we're done now. This is it. <laughs> and luckily the therapist and psychiatrist talked to me then, and they were like, listen, we need to see you every few months, and we need to make adjustments for the rest of his life. He's... He's a growing child. He's growing in in size, in weight, and his brain is changing rapidly at this age. He's eight years old. He's forming these incredibly complex connections and synapses that are that change how his brain has worked for the earlier parts of his life. And and you know, when there's trauma in early years, it really changes the way that the brain is formed. And you can't undo that, but you can put band-aids and and adjust things with therapy and with with family therapy mm. with positive experiences there are ways to mend some of those things that happen in earlier life you can't just erase all of those things but medication helps a lot to allow those positive experiences to then form the brain does that make sense it makes a lot of sense i'm just thinking through that whole thing and it makes a a lot of sense and if the therapy or the medication isn't the right thing or isn't touching that to where those positive experiences are able to come in and start doing some rewiring of the brain, for mm -hmm. lack of a better term, because I'm just a mom, then what? Yeah, you. so you've got to just try different medications, different amounts of medication, and different therapies. But you can't try them all at the same time because right. you need to know what the variable is. So if you increase an antidepressant, you don't want to start a new therapy until okay. you've had six weeks with that new dose. That makes sense. If you start EMDR therapy after doing talk therapy for a few years, don't start a new medication until you've had several weeks with that therapy. And it's the, hard. That that's a long time to wait. It's it is, and it requires an in, incredible amount of patience on your part and data tracking to oh, figure out wow. what is working and what is not working. So, it, when he turned nine, he was hospitalized for suicidal thoughts. That so we had already mm. increased his dose. The therapists and psychiatrists were like, you know, we've done three different kinds of therapy. We've done theraplay. We've done parent-child interaction therapy, and now you've done EMDR, and we don't want to try a new one yet. We don't want to increase the meds yet. So we're going to hospitalize him so that we can get him stable and figure out what would be a better fit when he's in a safe place. And was that his first inpatient hospitalization? Sort of, yes. He was hospitalized when he was in foster care in kindergarten. Okay. But it was just because there were no foster homes available 
and no so shelters available. You went to the hospital? Yeah. Yep. A lot of kids live in the hospital for a couple of months while they are waiting for homes to open, waiting for shelters to have space freed up. It's it's bizarre. I know a lot of adults live in jail because of mm-hmm. not being able to access or not having beds available. Yeah. But kids end up in the hospital. Well, oh, yeah. it's better than jail, I guess. Yeah, except in the hospital, you can order food, you can watch TV all day, you yeah. don't have to go to school. So then when you go to a home, Oof. it's not fun. For sure. Yeah, it's like being in a hotel, kind of. Yeah. People are waiting on you it's all like the time. It's a vacation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. But that was his first psychiatric okay. hospital. Okay. At the age of nine. Yes. And how long was he there? 11 days. Okay. They tried a couple of ADHD medications at that time. Even though he doesn't have that diagnosis, he has a lot of impulsive behavior, and ADHD medications can curb impulsivity. Okay. But it didn't work. It It, didn't work. No. And actually, it made him really aggressive. So they also have a stimulant in a lot of ADHD medications, and that can make people who have trauma or aggression become really aggressive. So they were like, cool. Adderall, not a good fit. Guanfazine, not a good fit. Metadate CD, not a good fit. And I'm like typing all these in like, okay, what medications are you trying? How long did you try? What dose did you try? So I have a spreadsheet of just every medication that he's tried and then every side effect that wasn't great. Again, like you could probably do a master's thesis. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. On on what steps it takes to keep track of all of these things. It's it's The dedication is impressive. It really, I mean, that's a lot to have to keep track of. And and yeah, it's just a lot. And definitely not something that you think about when you are starting a family, especially in like the traditional (laughs) way. You're not like, oh, let me make a Google document where I can keep track of all of this stuff. Yeah. And at this point, when he's nine years old, are you still without other children or? Yeah, we um, were we were talking to our caseworker about maybe fostering one of our son's uh, biological siblings. He also went to our school, so I knew him from our school. They saw each other every day and was a wonderful connection. And we were like, cool, He's he was in a shelter, and why don't we let him come and join us too? And it ended up not being a good fit. They... Their bond is just so trauma-focused. All of their memories are traumatic. So when they're together, all they want to talk about is reliving some of these negative events, and they they both just spiral. Mm. So when we did foster him, they both got hospitalized at the same time. It was awful. And the judge decided neither of them can live together. It's just not safe or appropriate for them Mm. to to be together until they both work out their Their own mental health stuff. And how old was your son at that point? Uh, nine. Okay, so that same kind of time frame. Yeah, yeah and then the, the older brother, he was 10. Okay. Mm. Moving forward, at the ripe old age of nine, he's already experienced all the things that we've talked about. Let's go forward from nine. Yeah, so we were still seeing some self-harm, so we were continuing to increase his antidepressant. We installed cameras in a variety of rooms in our home so that he was with supervision all of the time. Even when he felt like he needed some space, we could always know that he was safe, if that makes sense. Sure, because you were watching him. Yeah, yep. We, We knew that he wouldn't have anything to harm himself with in his room, but he does have curtains, and curtains have strings, and maybe we just need to have our eyes in there, too. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so we did. We installed cameras, and that's actually not allowed if you're in foster care, but it is allowed once they're adopted. You can't have cameras, especially cameras that can record foster kiddos. That makes sense. Yeah, you got to keep everybody safe, and that was just something that we couldn't do prior. But okay. we hadn't really had a need for it during foster care, so it didn't end up being a, a huge problem or barrier. Installing cameras was really, really helpful because then I could, you know, go take a shower and <laughs> yeah. pop my phone up and watch watch the camera while I was taking a shower really quickly and, and know that he's physically safe. Yeah. Uh, due to his sexual abuse, we also had some kind of inappropriate sexualized behaviors and some behaviors that we wouldn't even call sexualized but like urinating in unusual places and that's a sign of sexual abuse or um, – defecating in unusual areas all of those are like big red flags for sexual abuse so we already knew that there was sexual abuse we did have behaviors like that the cameras helped us keep our home clean also yes we also had two dogs so like there was we wanted to make sure we kept the dogs safe and i mean cameras helped tremendously did he ever act out against your dogs or towards your dogs once when he was eight he touched our girl dog's genitals and she snapped and she bit him. Hmm. And he said, I'll never do that again. And who knows if that was age-appropriate curiosity or a result of the sexual abuse. We'll probably never sure. be able to parse that apart. But hmm. um, and, and, you know, he's 13 now. and He's got some interesting things he wants to learn about and Google. So he doesn't have much access to, to the Internet. But some of that is age-appropriate. Absolutely. And it's hard to figure out, you know. Well, and that's what I was going to say. What thirteen-year-old thirteen-year-old boy isn't googling, googling boobies? Well, or far worse. And <laughs> again, different episode. If you have not listened to the episode in season one, I can't even remember now. Season one or two with Tracy Foster of Screen Sanity. It is, I think, a must-listen for anyone because she addresses and Screen Sanity works with families. Um, in terms of how to navigate the digital world, because it is a struggle for all families. So, I'm just yeah, to tell you, a, I'm sure you. It's a great probably know that already, but it it's it is um, it's tricky, and it's the whole pornography on online and the average age of exposure now is nine, mm-hmm. um, and how that's rewiring kids' brains yeah. and you know completely changing their view of what sex is and a lot of it tracy said is um, it's children and so there's just a lot of messed upness there and even not just pornography but the way that movies are rated for Mm -hmm. kids like my son wanted to watch transformers it's pg-13 he's 13 there's nudity Mm. in a pg-13 movie and i wouldn't think that that is okay like when i think of movies when i was a child that were pg-13 i don't think there were any cuss words and now they can say the f word once Mm. and and they just changed how things are rated when i was a kid we didn't even have pg-13 so that's how old i am it was (laughs) pg and r and pg was like cartoons kind of yeah like yeah pretty milk and cookies compared to what's out there now, but we digress. My conversation with Jennifer will continue on episode 13, which will be available Tuesday, August 8th. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and share these episodes. And thanks again for listening to the Just a Mom podcast. (laughs) 
If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or ideation, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please share this with your friends and anyone you think may find these interviews helpful. Thanks again for listening to Just a Mom.